So we are still in 1 Corinthians. And last week we dealt decisively with sexual immorality. So now what we're going to do is go through licit sex, which some people find far less exciting. So anyway, Paul is going to talk about marriage. And it is possible to read this as being against marriage. I don't believe that is so. And the reason I don't believe that is so is because Judaism is very pro-marriage. First of the commandments is be fruitful and multiply, and marriage is a big deal. So I don't believe Paul is speaking against marriage. But you've got to get good way through chapter 7 before you realize what he's talking about. You will start off talking about marriage as being a necessary evil. People have these urges and stuff, which we talked about in chapter 6. And in order to keep you from sinning, then you need to get married. But it's really better if you don't. He talks about marriage as if it were not something that was especially good. And when you finally get a ways through the chapter, what you discover is Paul is of the opinion that the return of Yeshua is imminent. His sort of lukewarm statements on marriage are in the context of the Lord's coming back anytime, and you really need to be ready for that as opposed to spending time being interested in a family and all that kind of stuff. But you don't get that perspective until after he has gone through this long thing about, well, I suppose if you can't control yourself, then okay, it's okay to get married so that you don't sin. I mean, it's it's very, very lukewarm presentation of marriage. And I think that the reason for that is his perspective that Yeshua can come back very quickly and he's expecting it to happen any time now. And at that point, the marriage business becomes of secondary importance. So just stay the way you are because Yeshua is going to be back any time. You remember Paul was fairly high up in the Pharisaic hierarchy. May have been in the Sanhedrin, may have been in the temple bureaucracy, not really clear what his official position was, but he was clearly high up because he was trusted to be sent for example, to Damascus and round up followers of the way and bring them back. So he was not sort of a low-level functionary. And that would have entailed him being married. In order to be in the Sanhedrin or any of those kinds of things, you pretty much had to be married. So the question was, was Paul married? And the answer to that could very well be yes, and I kind of think it's yes, but there's no scriptural evidence. And what would have happened had he been married, as he went on his missionary journeys, it was very, very common for someone who was going on a long journey, you know, you were going for a year or so to go to some other country and trade and then come back, or you were going on a long sea voyage or any of those kinds of things. It was very, very common for the man to give his wife a certificate of divorce, known as a get. And the idea there is if he perished at sea, or he perished in a foreign country, she would not then be prohibited from remarrying. Very common practice that when someone was going off on a long, dangerous journey, he would give his wife a get, and she'd 
still love you, babe, but here's a gift. And if I don't come back within some period of time, you're then free to remarry because you have a certificate of divorce. Without the certificate of divorce, unless you can come up with a body, she is no longer free to marry. She continues to be married to the guy until a body shows up. That has real practical consequences. So, for example, during the Holocaust, World War II, there were lots and lots of people who died in the Holocaust. And it's not a problem for men, it's a problem for women. So if a woman is married and her husband disappears during the Holocaust and there's no record of what happened to him, she continues to be bound to him and is prohibited from remarrying. A man, on the other hand, since it's technically illegal for him to have multiple wives, could go ahead and, you know, he could say, all right, it's been 10 years and we have no idea what happened and we never found a body. As far as I'm concerned, she's dead. Well, I'll go ahead and marry. A man can do that. A woman cannot. So what happened after the war is they set up rabbinic organizations who spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what happened to people. And it was more than just, gee, I wonder what happened to Uncle Phil. It was Uncle Phil left a wife, and Uncle Phil's wife can't get married again unless we find out what happened to it. So it was a, a major project after the war trying to figure these things out. So Paul, he traveled all over the Mediterranean and was always gone on missionary journeys. So I can see it very, very probable that he was married while he was with whatever body he was with before his conversion. And then when he got called by the Lord to travel like he did, he would have given his wife a gift. Not that he necessarily had any problem with her. I mean, it's just, if I don't come back from one of these missionary journeys, I want you to be able to marry. With all that introduction. Chapter 7. Now, concerning the matter about which you wrote. So, he's obviously answering a letter that they sent him with questions. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's sort of his lead-in on marriage. And we did the illicit sexual relations in chapter 5 and 6, and so now we're doing the licit ones. And this lead-in paragraph reads as very lukewarm at best, toward marriage. This is entirely contrary to Jewish practice and Jewish belief. Scripture says in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. So lots of people read this introductory thing and they come to the conclusion that Paul or the Christian church is somehow against marriage or, or regard marriage as sort of an inferior thing that, yeah, you all can go do that if you can't keep yourselves under control but it's really better that you don't. That's the way it reads. Yeah, mine has it in quotes too. I hadn't thought of that interpretation. Let's try that again then. 
So chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, colon, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, close quote. So what he's doing is he is quoting from the letter that they sent him, which is a perfectly good interpretation. I, I think that's a very good interpretation. And the question comes, why do they think that? Because remember in the previous couple of chapters, they were getting randy with everybody. And that may be speculation here entirely. It may be that they're slamming from one stop to the other. In other words, you've got one group that's off fooling around with anything that moves, and then you've got the other group that is appalled and aghast at the whole thing, and writes Paul and says, uh, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? And that's a possible interpretation. It is speculation. Everybody understood what I just said. It's speculation. Just because it's speculation doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but it does mean it's not reliable. We don't have that other letter, so we're sort of guessing. Certainly in the Torah, there are a number of cases where men and women are forbidden from coming together. Where's the first one? At the base of Mount Sinai. Remember, they're getting ready to receive the word of the Lord from the top of the mountain, and the instructions are separate for three days, wash your garments, purify yourselves, and get ready to stand in the presence of God. So that has nothing to do with plumbing. It has everything to do with coming into the presence of God. Then the next place it gets mentioned, as somebody brought up, is in Leviticus, where there are times in the woman's monthly cycle, and there are times after childbirth when you are forbidden from coming together. So anyway, as I led off with, celibacy is not a Jewish concept. And he himself says, don't deprive yourselves of physical congress except perhaps for a period of time where you separate to go off and pray and stuff like that, but then come back together so that you don't get tempted and fall into sin. So all good ideas. I have no idea which, if any of them, are correct. But again, if you just read the first five verses of chapter 7, his discussion of marriage starts off on a kind of a downer. And if you don't understand the context, everything from there seems like rationalizations of something that, well, it's not really the best, but it all sounds like left-handed compliments for something that isn't really the best. And, and I'm suggesting that, A, he's responding to a question, which we don't understand. And then, B, I think he is also of the opinion that the Lord's return is imminent any day. And you really don't want to take on a family if Yeshua is coming back in the next week. Moving right along. So now it's verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So this is all very left-handed, if you will. Verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. 
not I, but the Lord. So now he's saying, I am speaking Torah to you. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now notice that there's two separate words there. One is separate and the other one is divorce. And I don't know what the underlying Greek is. Now, one of the places that people go when they talk about this is Yeshua when he talks about divorce. So I'm in Matthew 5.31. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What we're talking about there is the subject of a get. And one of the things that happens in Jewish communities to this day is a man will get really chapped at his wife and want a divorce. And so instead of giving her a divorce, he simply puts her away, which is to say he either leaves the house or runs her out of the house, and he is then free to remarry. She is not. And Yeshua is saying, no, you can't do that. That's not right. The only way you can do that is in the case of we're dealing with adultery. I mean, if you just don't like her pancakes, it is not okay for you to leave her anchored while you go off and form a new family. And the authority that I have that on, by the way, is Spiros Zodiades. He has a rather lengthy discussion of that concept. And the idea is that breaking up a marriage is not forbidden, and it's not good, but it's not forbidden. What's forbidden by Yeshua is breaking up the marriage and then leaving the wife so that she is not able to remarry. There's no circumstances where divorce is regarded lightly. What we're talking about is legality here. And the question is, is she being forced to either remain celibate or commit adultery? And those two choices revolve around a get. And so when Yeshua is talking about this, what he's talking about in the context of hardness of heart and everything is, hey, folks, except for the case of adultery, if you are going to separate from your wife, you need to set her free. You can't keep her anchored to you while you go off and acquire another family. That isn't right. And I suspect Paul is saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 7.10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, this is Paul speaking, not God. To the rest I say, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I have no idea what that means. In the first place, he's talking about clean and unclean. And remember, he's writing to Gentiles. So clean and unclean are in the context of the tabernacle or the temple. I don't know what clean and unclean means in this context. I, I just don't know. 
And similarly, I don't know what the children being holy means in this context. Paul clearly does. He wrote it. But I, he didn't tell me. 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Now, in light of Jewish law, I sort of interpret that as if you have an unequally yoked marriage and the pagan half of it leaves, then the half that remains is not in fact bound as she would be if both of them were believers. In other words, the way I read that is if, if the pagan takes a hike, then she's free to remarry. Now, the other thing I would point you to in this context is the return from Babylon. Remember when the Hebrews came back to Israel from Babylon? One of the things that happened is a whole bunch of them went native and married Canaanite women. And I think it was Ezra or Zerubbabel, I don't remember which one right off the top of the head, says, all right, I want you to put away all of these pagan wives. So they got rid of all the pagan wives. I don't know what happened to the children. I just don't remember. And then formed new families within the 12 tribes. So Paul may be thinking in that context as he writes this paragraph. So he says, all right, you guys have come in to the kingdom of God. You're married to a pagan. Just like the Israelites, when they came back to Israel, married pagans, and then when they realized what was going on, and the priest, or, or Ezra's rebel bell says, all right, you've got to knock this stuff off, and you've got to get rid of all these pagan women, they put those all away. Paul is saying, I'm not telling you to do that. Certainly Paul knows the history, but I don't know if the Corinthians know the history. In, in other words, I'm putting something on this from a perspective of having read the entire Bible, I don't know that the Corinthians who are corresponding with Paul have that same degree of knowledge and understanding because they're Gentiles. But I could see Paul, as he's writing this, saying, uh, well, it happened back at the return to Babylon. I guess I could tell them all to get rid of their pagan spouses, but I'm not going to do that. I, I could see that going through his mind. This is a new church, and you've got people who have come into the kingdom of God, and, and just like any church, I and mean, we've got quite a bit of it here, one half of the family will come in and the other half will not. That's an entirely normal circumstance. And what Paul is saying is, if you came into the kingdom and your spouse didn't, you don't have to get rid of them. But if the unbelieving spouse in addition to not liking your pancakes, doesn't like your church, and leaves, you are not bound to that unbelieving spouse. We're not going to get through the rest of the chapter. Let's go ahead and stop there, and we'll pick it up at verse 17 next time. Perhaps we'll get farther. 